Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new voice this week. This is uh, Cassandra Shand. She is a Young Voices contributor, also a PhD candidate at uh, Cambridge, like the Cambridge. Wow. Cassandra, so good to meet you. No, thank you so much, Brian, for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, take just a moment. Since a lot of our listeners are meeting you for the first time, um, tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and who you are and what you do. Um, yeah, sure. So currently I focus on business strategy and policy strategy strategy optimization at Cambridge, um, kind of like toolkits and modeling. Um, I'm in the policy and entrepreneurship space. So that confluence of both is kind of my uh, bread and butter, very into the innovation space. I'm a kind of a big believer in innovation is the solution to pretty much everything. So um, that's my perspective. Also love foreign policy though. So very happy to touch on both. Okay. So we're going to talk today about where the lines of innovation and foreign policy may actually be crossing. And that is uh, AI. And in particular, you you had mentioned that, you know, the G7 summit, is it over now? I, I know it was going on, but uh I haven't seen a lot of, uh, I haven't seen a ton of media coverage of uh, the G7 summit that was taking place in Hiroshima, but uh, I'm looking at an article you wrote about where that summit is actually a really great opportunity to tackle AI regulation. So where do we begin? AI is now kind of a, it's, it's a matter of foreign policy, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, it's, uh, I think I put it in my, my article, uh, but, uh, the genie's out of the bottle. There's no way to put it back in. We have a new technology that most countries are ill-equipped to regulate. Most are our countries ill-equipped to regulate, um, and it's not a it's not like a nuclear weapon. It's a technology that some guy can uh, further develop on his couch through open source, or you can um, be in a major tech company and you're competing with other big tech companies. You have multiple layers of competition. You're also competing with other countries like the U.S. Like we're competing with China indirectly in kind of an AI arms race is, is kind of how I, how I like to put it. Um, but you're absolutely right about the G7. Uh, it, it's kind of being overshadowed about uh, by other pressing geopolitical matters. We had Ukraine. Zelensky was there. Um, uh, with the F6, there's a new F-16 deal um, that's being brokered, and uh, South Korea and Japan um, have, have reopened discussions, which has also been a major talking point um, during the G7. But um, you know, AI is definitely the, uh, kind of establishing a more refined AI framework is in the best interest of uh, internationally of all global actors, and so I think, uh, yeah, the G7 is a great opportunity to discuss it. Okay. And you mentioned in your article that uh, one of the reasons why this is a very good time for them to be discussing it is because uh, this is rapid innovation. In fact, it's so rapid. Seriously, I lose my breath trying to trying to just, you know, stay up to, well, okay, what's happening next? It seems like it came on the scene in earnest within just the last couple of years, really. I've started to see it or hear about it on a daily basis. Talk to me about some of the, the, the changes that are coming about and, and what you see directly ahead that, that makes AI a very you know serious matter that needs some serious consideration yeah absolutely so uh we kind of saw these this new um large language model chat gpt it hit the scene in december um since then it has radically changed a lot of different industries most recently the education it, it, the education tech industry has been hit pretty hard um i think it's the first casualty um this technology has a a lot of spillover effects and other other um aspects of the economy and other aspects of the job market that we fully aren't even comprehending yet. And I think that's one of the things that kind of um, is a bit unnerving. We also don't know how powerful these newly trained models are going to be. 
and that kind of creates a level of uncertainty that I think a lot of countries should be very weary about. Uh, at the same time, um, at the same time, we it's kind of rare to see um, a situation where in, the industry themselves, or the AI industry itself, is putting a pause on future training of um, models, which kind of uh, that, that, that's really concerning in itself, the fact that the industry is self-regulating and we don't have an adequate policy framework or policy mechanism to regulate it accordingly. Um, I think that should definitely be an area for, of concern for most countries and most civilians. Something you mentioned in your article is that uh, the G7 should be looking at maybe a codified, widely adopted agreement or treaty that would set some rules prohibiting dangerous AI development. And, and I've tried to look at the positive side of AI as much as possible. I made the mistake of watching one of the Terminator movies a couple weeks ago and was kind of like, oh, no, <laughs> here it comes. But what is what is the dangerous side of, of AI development? I'm not necessarily looking at a Terminator scenario, but I understand there are some very real concerns about where it could be taken um well honestly the terminator scenario is i mean it, i think it used to be far-fetched but i think for most uh people that are very weary about ai it's it's kind of it's very relevant to them today i think in the defense space i i think that i, I mean already before chat gpt was launched there, there was a, a big shift towards um ai and using AI on ai in the battlefield um that is a concern there's also a concern uh, about training AI models to the point where they kind of match human intellect. Um, that uh, I don't think humanity is prepared for kind of what comes next, or I don't think anyone really knows like what, what happens then. Um, so there are these really big pressing questions about kind of um, the safety of AI. Um, and that, that kind of like leads me to something that I think should be considered as like kind of a regulatory component. I, I think that all AI companies should have some sort of like AI safety, AI philosophy kind of, uh, this is actually kind of a cool opportunity for social scientists and um, for people in the philosophy space to kind of get involved and start discussing AI ethics, AI safety in these AI development spaces. Because I think um, without that, we kind of, we could get kind of into a weird sketchy area. Um, this makes and we just don't really know what's next. <laughs> this makes me think of uh, the original Jurassic Park movie where Jeff Goldblum's character talks about they were so busy trying to see if it could be done that they didn't think about whether or not they should be doing it. And and it sounds like kind of a similar quandary, you know, may be appearing here. Talk to me about the AI race with China and, and the U.S. Um, is this like an arms race or is that putting it in too stark of terms? I think an arms race is perfectly adequate. Um, I think that whatever country has the superior AI model is going to be on top. Um, uh, and I, it's difficult. I mean, China is pretty secretive about kind of like their their training um, on their own models, whatever those might be. Um, so it's difficult to kind of assess kind of their level of AI competency, but. Um, yeah, just because the purely defense applications, that's concerning in itself. And then also kind of the dual use applications of AI. Um, the fact that you could have a commercial, commercially applied AI technology also um, kind of adopt its own defense use cases in different situations. Um, that blurs the lines between kind of what is safe and what isn't. And it definitely um, it increases the importance of having a robust AI sector in each country. And so I... I definitely anticipate kind of a more arms race situation, um, which we don't want. And that's why, and I don't think it's in the US or China's best interest to engage in AI, in AI arms race. And so I think that's why we kind of, we should 
move towards establishing an international framework to kind of regulate the growth of AI, especially risky AI. I mean, like at this point, it's already, again, it's already out of the bottle. Um, but I think it's a matter of kind of assessing how risky developing in, in certain, certain kind of verticals are, um, is, and it's kind of making a judgment call accordingly, So, which is difficult. <laughs> Cassandra, I will, I'd, this is going to be kind of a weird question, but I'm naturally a little bit suspicious of, of governments. I, I know that when they're doing what they should be doing, they can be a great blessing. When they start to slip you know, beyond what their, their limits are supposed to be or into some gray areas, it can be a real problem. Can we trust government to regulate AI, or is this something that would be more of a collaborative effort between perhaps some regulatory agencies and the private sector? I mean, it, I think regulation should be pursued only insofar as to encourage innovation, but safe innovation. Um, it's like it, it, it's this is not this is um, kind of a false comparison, but it, it'd be like should a private company have a nuclear bomb? Um, that's kind of like that to me is kind of like how I view it. Um, that being said, we do want to encourage innovation in the AI space. We absolutely do. Um, I personally would prefer less government intervention, um, but at the same time, it kind of it, it is kind of nerve wracking seeing a, a, a few huge like hegemonic companies. Honestly, that's that's what that's what'll be that's what'll happen. You have this kind of like supranational um, AI company, um, which is good or bad. I, I guess the concerning part is if like that escalates with China or with other countries that are interested in kind of like competing on the AI in the AI space. And that's when you kind of get, in my opinion, like a very clear race to the bottom. And I think um, regulation and cooperation, um, especially with other countries kind of working together and making sure in mutual interest that something like that doesn't happen, that's the best case scenario. That being said, like we do want AI development, like I am as close to permissionless innovation. That's kind of like my mindset as you possibly can get. Um, but I think we have to be safe and wise about it. And I think that adopting some sort of risk-based risk -based framework that encourages innovation while um, limiting some of the cl clearly adverse risks of AI uh, is the right way to go. All right. We're talking with Cassandra Shan. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. She's also a Young Voices Innovation Fellow. Cassandra, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, at Cassandra Shand. Very good. I'm going to be watching this subject with great interest now. I appreciate uh, you having this conversation. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Once again, we welcome you back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are visiting now with Emily Schroen. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Emily, you are also part of a global nonprofit humanitarian innovation group. Tell us just a little bit about what you do. And then we have a very specific topic that we're going to discuss. Sure. Yeah. So the Humanitarian Innovation Group is the name of our organization. I'm fortunate to be one of the co-founders of the organization. We're formerly known as Americans for Ukraine. It's a group that started out as a way of raising awareness, raising funds, and raising international economic uh, and intellectual cooperation to support Ukrainian refugees primarily living out of a refugee center in Warsaw, Poland, that we continue to support and to help coordinate. Uh, and that mission has since evolved more broad into 
something where we're trying to envision a new innovative way of approaching humanitarian aid and to bring together partners to start something new. We've recently started some projects in Ukraine itself, working with education, working with local government leaders and things like that. So what started as a simple, well, not, not simple, but uh, a mission that was straightforward of helping uh, refugees in a refugee center in Warsaw, Poland has now evolved into something bigger. And it's been an honor to be a part of it. So let's let's give this some perspective in terms of when we talk about uh, refugees from Ukraine, what what kind of numbers are we looking at? Well, it's interesting it, because numbers have, have gone up and down. And actually, it, recently, we noticed a, a dramatic shift in the, the demographics and how people are moving. There are some days, you know, on the Polish-Ukrainian border where there are more Ukrainians returning to Ukraine than are coming across into Poland. And a lot of that has to do with some people are returning to their homes after their territories have been liberated. Others, uh, their territories have become more stable. Or some have also gotten fatigue of trying to live and fit into host countries. So it, so in that sense, the numbers have changed. But at, at its highest point, there were, you know, some estimates put about 15 million Ukrainians crossing the border wow. into Poland, surrounding countries and resettling in many other countries. And, and some many of those Ukrainians, I don't know, I don't know if it's fair to say most, but many will never return to Ukraine. Uh, or many were, will settle in surrounding countries. But then there's also a good deal that will one day return to Ukraine and help help rebuild the country. So let's talk about uh, one specific Ukrainian refugee. And uh, he found uh, open arms waiting for him in Japan. I, you know, I when I think about, uh, you know, the countries that are welcoming these refugees, I was thinking primarily Eastern Europe. But uh, talk to me about Japan and then let's talk a little bit about this particular refugee. Sure. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to do this interview with with this particular refugee and then others from Japan is that I think like you, I had this impression that Japan remains this kind of closed, more homogenous society. They don't have a strong history of accepting refugees. They, their policy is still quite strict. Um, so to see stories like Alexi, who is the, the person I was fortunate to interview and others who are surviving and, and even some are thriving in Japan is welcoming. And Japan still doesn't recognize Ukrainians as refugees. They have a special kind of emergency humanitarian provision where they, they are called evacuees, which has allowed them to have temporary residential status, temporary employment status, things of that nature. But it's important to think that, you know, according to the government, Ukrainians are still not refugees. And they're the, the government's intention is for the people living there to be living there temporarily. Uh, but yes, wow. that is that is kind of the circumstance surrounding that. So what uh, what was this? Uh, you're going to have to help me with his name. I can I can get through Oleski, but uh, how do you say his last name? You know, actually, I'd have to pull it up myself. It's crazy. I've lived here in Poland for a little while now, but I still struggle with a Ukrainian name. But and frankly, he never mentioned it to me. Well, we discussed it a little bit. He just goes by Alexei. He's a very honest, you know, forthcoming young man, uh, only 18 years old, wow. uh, who ended up leaving Ukraine when he was 17. He was part of a territorial defense force before he was, you know, of, of the legal age in Ukraine. Um, and now, when he was 17, he was able to leave the country more flexibly due to restrictions forbidding adult men from leaving, so they're available for the army. But so, 
So he is now currently living in Japan after having left when he was 17, living in Poland briefly, and then on his 18th birthday, getting on a flight to Japan and starting a new life there as a young person. Wow. Um, I can imagine there would be some pretty big culture shock. I mean, I, I've not been to Japan. I have been to Europe, but uh, they're very different cultures. Um, are the Japanese, uh, are they known for being, you know, a welcoming kind of people? I have this impression that uh, perhaps they're, they're a little more insular as, as a society. Right. And actually, I had that same impression. That was, that was how I approached this interview with Alexi, was that it must have been so hard. You know, the, the culture is so different. The language is so different. And the people are different. There aren't as many international people there. That must have been such a challenge to adapt to culturally. And I was surprised, actually, actually when Alexi told me, no, it wasn't that hard. It felt more natural than you would have expected. The people were very kind and continued to be very kind to him. I think what we've noticed is, at least from Alexei's perspective and from several other, you know, Ukrainians who I've been fortunate to, to speak with or work with, is that they've been they've been positively welcomed by Japanese society. I think too, noticing the difference, and actually, Japanese government has also been largely supportive through some of these emergency humanitarian measures. But the Japanese society responded very strongly to the conflict beginning in Ukraine. They've been very supportive with humanitarian aid. And I think now they've welcomed over, it's probably around 2,400, maybe a little more wow. Ukrainian evacuees. And so we're seeing this shift. But Alexei told me the language is the hardest part, but things like the culture were surprisingly easy for him. And that that absolutely shocked me. So, uh, what does this say about the prospects for for other uh, Ukrainian refugees, whether they end up in Japan or not? Um, generally, are they mm -hmm. finding acceptance? You know, in in the world, are are people sympathetic to to why they they have uh, you know fled their home country and and willing to to allow them in and, and invite them to be a part of of their their own society? Right. Well, and frankly, this has varied significantly by country. And but I think overall, compared to, you know, refugees from some other conflicts, maybe who were from Afghanistan or some other Middle East or African countries, we're seeing that Ukrainians are having a bit more of a warm reception. That could be because of the way that the invasion was publicized. There's a pretty, at least in the West, a pretty, you know, strong general consensus of a positive sentiment toward Ukraine in this conflict. Um, so, so there's a bit of a different reaction comparing Ukrainian refugees to refugees from other conflicts, but you'll, you'll see, and there's still a positive response in Poland, but as Alexi mentioned, and as actually referenced in my article is there is a bit more of a, a weariness with having so many foreigners in your country all at once. And we're, we're noticing this with Poland. There's, there's, you know, a little bit more of a culture difference of having all of a sudden in Warsaw alone about, you know, a million and a half Ukrainians almost, you know, within a, a series of months. But in Japan, as Alexi referenced, is they're not as familiar with this. And while that could go both ways, in this case, they don't know Ukrainians. They're intrigued. And they want to know more. And according to Alexi's experience, this has made them very welcoming. You know, the United States has taken many, many, many Ukrainian refugees. And while they, they struggle in ways that a lot of other Ukrainians do, uh, or a lot of other refugees do, excuse me, they've 
been largely positively received by the public. That doesn't necessarily mean that things like getting a job or employment or integration are easy. Uh, but I think in this case, from my personal experience witnessing the difference, is that Ukrainians are fortunate to have a, a generally positive public image as refugees. All right. Again, we are talking with Emily Schroen. And uh, Emily, let's once again tell people the name of the group that, that you work for, the nonprofit that you work for. Sure. I work with the Humanitarian Innovation Group, formerly known as Americans for Ukraine. And you can find us on www.hig-global.org. And where can people find you on social media? Sure. Uh, Young Voices has a page with my name. If you just look me up, Emily Schroen, that's the best place to find all of my work. I'm also on Twitter at M. Schroen and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me as well. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Charles Brandt back to the show. Charlie, we've had you on here before, but uh, for people meeting you for the very first time, let's take just a few moments here to have you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Of course. Well, thanks so much for having me back on. My name's Charlie. Um, I'm a... uh, well, will be a third-year law student at George Washington come the fall. Um, And I am training to be a lawyer, obviously. I'm interested in free speech and separation of powers. All right. We've got a doozy of an article to talk about here. And I say doozy in that this one, you know, I like to think I'm I'm okay at thinking outside the box. But this is a this is something I really hadn't considered. The title is Brown v. Board of Education was also about school choice, and I know school choice is a hot button issue right now. Um, let's let's set the stage here a little bit. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision, and uh, th- this ruling was this was a pretty big deal back in, in the 1950s, was it not? It absolutely was a big deal. Brown v. Board of Education was decided on May 17th, um, 1954, and it held essentially that separate but equal, the legal doctrine that had prevailed since the, I believe, the 1890s in a case called Plessy v. Ferguson um, was constitutionally untenable. And so it reversed Plessy and held that segregation in public schools in particular Uh, was unconstitutional because separate but equal was inherently unequal, that it made black children feel a sense of inferiority. And the court pointed to sociological evidence with things like the doll test. So children were asked, you know, between a black doll and a white doll, which was best essentially, and you had little black girls tending toward the white doll. Um, So that was the thrust of the case. And as a matter of precedent, that's what it stands for. Um, And I would say that those, you know, that holding is pretty uh, responsive to the litigation goals of the NAACP, which argued the case. But interestingly, it's not so responsive to the concerns of the Brown family that impelled them to file suit and enlist the NAACP in the first place. And, and so where where does school choice 
come into this because like like I say I I've been watching school choice battles play out all across the country but it had never really occurred to me to to view Brown v Board of Education from from the standpoint of uh, but how did that affect school choice well, Matt Halverson, uh, the founder of the Rise Up for Students blog, explained um, in a post uh, several years back at this point, I believe back in 2016, 2017, what made Brown, uh, excuse me, Leola and Oliver Brown angry enough to sue their local school board. It wasn't institutional racism per se, but a quintessential parental concern for their daughter Linda's commute. Going to the all-black school, that of which Mrs. Leola Brown actually attended and enjoyed her experience there, required little Linda to, to make a pretty dangerous trek um, across town through a Yale rail yard, and then I believe only then to take a bus um, to the school. The all-white school, on the other hand, was just four blocks away from the family home. I think what a lot of people assume is that what motivated the brown suit, or this is what I assumed anyhow, was that the all-black school had less resources, that it was perhaps ill-serving Linda. Um, But it wasn't institutional racism in and of itself, but the decision of a self-interested racist school board to deny the Browns essentially parental choice that set the stage for one of the most famous Supreme Court decisions in the history of our country. And the court kind of missed that point. Um, and maybe we can forgive it for so for doing so, because it was the NAACP with this larger mission of desegregation that argued the case. But we shouldn't forget, uh, especially as the fight for school choice heats up in state houses across the country from Tallahassee to Indianapolis, that school choice is fundamentally a civil right. And for evidence of that proposition, look no further than Brown v. Board of Education and the basic parental concerns that motivated that case. Wow. So I got to ask this. uh, I know there are some state legislatures that are actually embracing school choice. It's always a contentious thing, it seems like, but it seems like more and more states have, have said, yeah, we want this school choice. Is there a likelihood that we could see another uh, Supreme Court case tantamount to uh, Brown v. Board of Education? The focus is exclusively on the school choice aspect. That's a great question. And I think you could have cases where school choice is tangentially relevant. Um, So the Supreme Court has said, for instance, that when it comes to like uh, vouchers and the like, um, school systems, or I guess I should say governments, cannot discriminate against religious schools. So at its core, that is school choice, but the constitutional rights implicated have to do with religion, in that case, not school choice. Uh, The issue with school choice in particular being litigated is you would need some kind of federal right to hinge it on, some kind of federal statutory or constitutional right. And though ostensibly you could argue that public education is a privilege or immunity of American citizenship within the sense of the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause, uh, that was essentially written out of the Constitution um, in the the late 1800s in a uh, couple of 
really poorly reasoned Supreme Court decisions called Slaughterhouse and uh, uh, Crookshank. So your question's really interesting. I'd certainly love that to be the case, and I think advocates should give it a go. But I would argue using constitutional law uh, in the courts to to further school choice initiatives is unlikely to be availing given the current state of uh, judicial precedent. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it seems to me, at least on, on the one hand, there is some pretty serious progress. I don't know the exact number, but um, it's been more than a handful of states that have actually succeeded in, in passing some form of school choice. Sadly, my home state of Idaho failed just barely <laughs> in this last legislative session. But, you know, we're always holding out to hope that, that such a thing will come along. Are there any other issues related to this that, uh, that you see uh, perhaps... Uh, you know, being elevated to the kind of status and awareness of, of school choice, you know, like, like we see currently? Well, uh, hmm. I think school choice is kind of the issue right now. Um, looking at the American Federation uh, for Children's website, you can see all of the different places where the school choice drive is currently active. And it lists Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Nevada, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Utah. Uh, people have said, I think quite rightly, that school choice is the civil rights issue of our time. And I think that's absolutely the case. And nothing made that clearer than the COVID-19 pandemic, which unions and their allies uh, in state and local legislators used as an excuse to keep public schools shuttered for two plus years. The learning loss is profound. Uh, and most of these kids, unfortunately, are never going to make up uh, all of the opportunities uh, and knowledge that they've essentially that their teachers have essentially given up for them um, in, in fealty uh, to their uh, union overlords like Randy Weingarten. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's really, I think, a drive, and it's quite heated, quite passionate, to disempower unions and to empower parents. And it's rooted fundamentally in liberty, in, in this notion that parents not self-interested school boards like the Topeka um, School Board and Brown v. Board of Education uh, to not allow these kinds of self-interested uh, unionized institutions with ulterior motives to make this sacred, sacrosanct decision for parents as to where their child should go to school. Uh, it's a liberty, it's a civil right, and Brown v. Board of Education uh, recognized that, perhaps not in the decision itself, but in the circumstances that led to the decision. All right. I, I appreciate your take on this, Charlie. Again, we're talking with Charles Brandt. He's a JD candidate at George Washington University Law School and a writer with Young Voices. And uh, now from here on out, I'll feel a little uh, pang of appreciation for uh, the Brown family for, for what they did to, to help swing the door open on school choice. Charlie, where can people find you and follow you on social media? You can follow me at CharlieBrandt44 on Twitter. Very good. Hey, I hope we get to talk again soon. I do as well. Thank you so much for having me.
are back. This is our fourth and final segment on Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm very happy to uh, welcome a familiar voice back to the program. Her name is Finesse Moreno-Rivera. And uh, Finesse, you've been on the show before, but for people who are meeting you for the very first time, take just a moment to tell us about who you are and what you do. Of course, and thank you for having me, Brian. I am a criminal justice data analyst. I've worked for multiple police departments, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, and just really looking at criminal justice policy as a whole. All right, and I'm looking at a wonderful article that you wrote for counterpunch.org about how body-worn cameras don't prevent police violence. And uh, as I was telling you before we went on the air, I probably spend too much time online so sometimes I wonder if if my point of view gets a little bit uh, uh, tilted or slanted uh, by by what I see. But uh, sometimes when I see, uh, you know, police acting with, uh, you know, uh, well, acting out of the bounds of of reasonable force, it it it, uh, it kind of makes me think that we've got a real problem here. Now I've heard people say, well, body cams, you know, that records everything. That means they're accountable. There's transparency. Talk to me about. Uh, why relying on those body cams to, to solve the problem of excessive force um, isn't uh, apparently working? Of course. So, you know, this, um, before I wrote this article, I, I really started thinking after Tally Nichols and the body-worn camera footage was released. You know, it, it makes you think, okay, you know you're being recorded. You know your actions are being recorded. So why is this not diverting um, you from actually using, um, you know, um, excessive force? And so after doing a little bit of digging, I realized that there really is no national set of policy, the recommendations with type of technology that's utilized uh, such as body-worn cameras, although it was touted and first um, funded during the Obama administration from the Department of Justice. So what we're seeing is that, you know, police departments are really busy. They don't have time to review their uh, their body-worn camera footage, their data, to really find out what the aggressors are that lead up to the success of force. As a matter of fact, what I found that police departments are analyzing less than 1% of their body-worn camera footage. So they're unable to really, you know, look at the officer's um, behavior and then also learn from that through training practices um, as a result. Huh. Well... <sighs> So, so let me ask you, first of all, and I know this is a kind of a subjective question, but Finesse, how big a problem, um, you know, is police brutality? Obviously, the stuff we see online or the stuff that makes the news represents a fraction of police interactions. Um, is, is it safe to say that, it, that it's easy to, to use availability bias to blow it out of proportion? Or is there, you know, is there really a big problem that, that needs some serious reform? You know, I think this has been an ongoing problem for a number of years. And I think that when people think about police brutality, you're looking at, you know, in excess, whatever the media has decided to show us in order to say, hey, this is really a big problem. But the, but the thing is, I think police brutality can have varying definitions, right? To me, police brutality can be an officer just misusing, you know, their their title. It could be an officer pulling you over for no good reason. It could be, to me, police brutality, you know, extends that of just, you know, losing someone's life. I think that it's all-encompassing. And so that's why I think that, you know, the media, at some points, yes, they do say, you know, they, they may – you know, over-exaggerate when it comes to the numbers of 
you know, police who are using excessive force. But again, I, by definition, to police brutality definitely exceeds that of people who are losing their lives. I think that it just comes down to officers who are, you know, just misrepresenting and misusing their badge. Okay. Has, was there any net benefit from, from body-worn uh, cameras? I know you, you mentioned in your article, it doesn't prevent police violence, but has it had some of the intended um, effect of, of creating greater transparency or at least awareness that, that there will be accountability for officer actions? You know, I, I really do think so, because what we're seeing is that it's definitely highlighting some systematic issues across the country within police departments, such as officers who are, you know, planting evidence against incriminating innocent people. You know, they're thinking that their, their body-worn camera is off, but it turns out their partners isn't, and so they've been caught carrying out illegal acts of personal gain. But then also what we're starting to see, too, whenever you see officers who are taken to trial or to court for their actions, they're starting to utilize body-work cameras within the courtroom as evidence. So I think that it really does, you know, serve its purpose. But I think it's time for us to start to take it to the next to the next level for sure. Okay, and and what are what are some of the things that uh, that we can expect to see at that at that next level, or at least what are some of the the, the intended reforms that that could make the difference? Mm-hmm. So you know, as I don't, I'm not quite sure if you listeners are aware of this, but, you know, when the funding for body work cameras was first started by the Department of Justice, it actually only funded uh, larger departments who could afford it. So think about New York, think about California, think about Boston. But the fact of the matter is that over 80% of police departments that are operating within the United States are small. Small departments that don't really get that funding or have the funds in order to, you know, have the latest technology of the body work camera um, characteristics that are necessary. So what we're seeing are body work cameras that are, you know, varying in characteristics, whether it's their battery life, where they can capture um, better quality videos, whether it's dark or light out. So I think that there really should be more proposed statewide policies as well as federal regulations when it comes to manufacturing. I think that all manufacturers should, you know, be the same when it comes to body-worn cameras to a certain extent. I know that's, you know, a huge, a huge ask, you know, like, you know, we're, that's, that's uh, capitalism, right? <laughs> to say, hey, can we all start at the, at the same level? But there definitely should be some type of, you know, policies around, you know, at least ground level what a body work camera should be able to provide. So that's that's definitely, you know, one thing that we can look into. Another thing would be, you know, taking and looking at the actual data. Again, police departments are busy. And as we're seeing right now, that they're actually, you know, only reviewing less than 1% of body worn camera footage. Now, that's an issue because really, you know, you're missing the meat of the data. And when I say you're missing the meat of the data is that the whole purpose of body worn cameras is not only, you know, making accountability and transparency to the forefront for police officers, but it can also act as a, a preventative measure for um, excessive force to occur in the future or police brutality, you know, if you will. So, you know, being able to look at that body worn camera footage is very important. I think by doing so, um, it could definitely catch officers in the act before things get out of hand, before that they're still out on the street excuse me, and are an endangerment to the community. So with that being said, you know, there is this new AI um, technology out called Trulio, 
which takes body-worn cameras, and then it flags officers' behaviors, whether that's, you know, something that is wonderful, it's great, they're speaking, you know, with respect and, you know, getting their jobs done. They will get a green check mark, but however, if they're, you know, using that aggressive behavior, aggressive um, of words against someone who is stopped or interacting with them, then they get a negative, um, a negative point. And so that report is sent to leadership, um, you know, monthly, weekly basis. So I think it's really important because it really can bring the police to the forefront who are the true problem. Okay. And, and you mentioned in your article uh, about uh, sometimes police will use uh, uh, selective recording. Um, if, if an officer turns off his or her body camera, is that necessarily a red flag or is that just uh, not a well-advised thing to do? Because it raises questions. It's definitely, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, it's definitely a red flag to me. But, you know, policies defire, you know, from states. Sometimes if you ask an officer to turn their body work cameras off in a particular state, they can tell you no. Uh, if you ask a body work uh, officer to turn it on because you feel more comfortable because you want to capture this footage, they can also tell you no. That's a huge deal. But what's truly, I think, would be awesome because you know, you're having your officers flagged. Well, if you have an officer that's not having a report sent back for any type of flags, whether good or bad, that means that they're selectively recording incidents, and that's not okay. So it really does place us forefront, again, officers who may be using selective recording. Okay. Well, I think at the end of the day, at least I want to believe, we're, we're all on the same page from the standpoint of, we want police officers who can uh, can provide a measure of safety and security for our communities. Uh, we want them to be uh, tough enough to get the job done, but uh, not tougher than that to the point that, you know, um, that uh, that spills over into unwanted um, aggression or, or brutal behavior. Um, are there any reforms on uh, we got about 30 seconds here. Are there any reforms, you know, in the works that to, that continue to, to weed out to more aggressive mentality among officers? Or is that just kind of something required for the job? You know, it's a really good question. You know, they, they do have a tough, a tough job. Um, but as of right now, no, we're still we're still struggling to figure out a way how to improve, um, you know, police officer in, encounters with everyday individuals. So we're still getting there, but it's definitely not fast enough. All right. I appreciate uh, getting to visit with you once again. We're talking with Finesse Moreno-Rivera. She is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Finesse, for people who want to follow your work, where is the best place to find you? At Finesse Marino Rivera on Twitter, as well as at Finesse Marino Rivera on LinkedIn. Very good. Thank you so much. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks, Brian.